This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Thomas Wells. Bullfinch's Mythology The Age of Fable by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter 23 Achilles and Hercules. The river god Achilles told the story of Eriskriston to Theseus and his companions, whom he was entertaining at his hospitable board, while they were delayed on their journey by the overflow of his waters. Having finished his story, he added, But why should I tell of other persons' transformations when I myself am an instance of the possession of this power? Sometimes I become a serpent, and sometimes a bull, with horns on my head. Or should I say, I once could do so. But now I have but one horn, having lost one. And here he groaned and was silent. Theseus asked him the cause of his grief, and how he lost his horn, to which question the river god replies as follows. Who likes to tell of his defeats? Yet I will not hesitate to relate mine, comforting myself with the thought of the greatness of my conqueror, for it was Hercules. Perhaps you have heard of the fame of Dejanira, the fairest of maidens, whom a host of suitors strove to win. Hercules and myself were of the number, and the rest yielded to us too. He urged in his behalf his descent from Jove and his labors by which he had exceeded the exactions of Juno, his stepmother. I, on the other hand, said to the father of the maiden, Behold me, the king of the waters that flow through your land. I am no stranger from a foreign shore, but belong to the country, a part of your realm. Let it not stand in my way that royal Juno owes me no enmity nor punishes me with heavy tasks. As for this man, who boasts himself the son of Jove, it is either a false pretense or disgraceful to him if true for it cannot be true except by his mother's shame. As I said this, Hercules scowled upon me, and with difficulty restrained his rage. "'My hand will answer better than my tongue,' said he. "'I yield to you the victory in words, but trust my cause to the strife of deeds.' With that he advanced towards me, and I was ashamed, after what I had said, to yield. I threw off my green vesture and presented myself for the struggle. He tried to throw me, now attacking my head, now my body. My bulk was my protection.' and he assailed me in vain. For a time we stopped, then returned to the conflict. We each kept our position, determined not to yield. Foot to foot, I bending over him, clenching his hand in mine, with my forehead almost touching his. Thrice Hercules tried to throw me off, and the fourth time he succeeded, brought me to the ground, and himself upon my back. I tell you the truth, it was as if a mountain had fallen on me. I struggled to get my arms at liberty, panting and reeking with perspiration. He gave me no chance to recover, but seized my throat. My knees were on the earth and my mouth in the dust. Finding that I was no match for him in the warrior's art, I resorted to others and glided away in the form of a serpent. I curled my body in a coil and hissed at him with my forked tongue. He smiled scornfully at this, and said, It was the labor of my infancy to conquer snakes. So saying, he clasped my neck with his hands. I was almost choked, and struggled to get my neck out of his grasp. Vanquished in this form, I tried what alone remained to me, and assumed the form of a bull. He grasped my neck with his arm, and dragging my head down to the ground, overthrew me on the sand. Nor was this enough. His ruthless hand rent my horn from my head. The Naiades took it, consecrated it, and filled it with fragrant flowers. Plenty adopted my horn and made it her own, and called it Cornucopia. The ancients were fond of finding hidden meaning in their mythological tales. They explained this fight of Achilos with Hercules by saying Achilos was a river that in seasons of rain overflowed its banks. When the fable says that Achilos loved Degenera, 
and sought a union with her, the meaning is that the river in its windings flowed through part of Dejanera's kingdom. It is said to take the form of a snake because of its winding, and of a bull because it made a brawling or roaring in its course. When the river swelled, it made itself another channel. Thus its head was horned. Hercules prevented the return of these periodical overflows by embankments and canals, and therefore he was said to have vanquished the river god and cut off his horn. Finally, the lands formerly subject to overflow, but now redeemed, became very fertile. And this is meant by the horn of plenty. There is another account of the origin of the cornucopia. Jupiter at his birth was committed by his mother Rhea to the care of the daughters of Melissius, a Cretan king. They fed the infant deity with the milk of the goat Almathia. Jupiter broke off one of the horns of the goat and gave it to his nurses, and endowed it with the wonderful power of becoming fulfilled with whatever the possessor might wish. The name of Amalthea is also given by some writers to the mother of Bacchus. It is thus used by Milton, Paradise Lost, Book 4. That Nyesian isle, girt with the river Triton, where old Cham, whose Gentiles Ammon call, and Limian Jove, hid Almathea and her florid son, young Bacchus, from his stepdame Rhea's eye. Admetus and Alcestis Aesculapius, the son of Apollo, was endowed by his father with such skill in the healing art that he even restored the dead to life. At this Pluto took alarm, and prevailed on Jupiter to launch a thunderbolt at Aesculapius. Apollo was indignant at the destruction of his son, and wreaked his vengeance on the innocent workmen who had made the thunderbolt. These were the Cyclopses, who had their workshop under Mount Aetna, from which the smoke and flames of their furnaces are constantly issuing. Apollo shot his arrows at the Cyclopses, which so incensed Jupiter that he condemned him as a punishment to become the servant of the mortal for the space of one year. Accordingly, Apollo went into the service of Admetus, king of Thessaly, and pastured his flocks for him on the verdant banks of the river Amphirosos. Admetus was a suitor with others, for the hand of Alcestis, the daughter of Phileus, who promised her to him who should come for her in the chariot drawn by lions and boars. This task Admetus performed by the assistance of his divine herdsmen, and was made happy in the possession of Alcestis. But Admetus fell ill, and being near to death, Apollo prevailed on the fates to spare him on condition that someone would consent to die in his stead. Admetus, in his joy at this reprieve, thought little of the ransom, and perhaps remembering the declarations of attachment which he had often heard from his courtiers and dependents, fancied that it would be easy to find a substitute. But it was not so. Brave warriors, who would willingly have perilled their lives for their prince, shrunk from the thought of dying for him on the bed of sickness. And old servants, who had experienced his bounty, and that of his house, from their childhood up, were not willing to lay down the scanty remnant of their days to show their gratitude. Men asked, Why does not one of his own parents do it? They cannot in the course of nature live much longer, and who can feel like them the call to rescue the life they gave from an untimely end? But the parents, distressed though they were at the thought of losing him, shrunk from the call. Then Alcestis, with a generous self-devotion, proffered herself as the substitute. Admetus, fond as he was of life, would not have submitted to receive it at such a cost. But there was no remedy. The condition imposed by the fates had been met, and the decree was irrevocable. Alcestis sickened as Admetus revived, and she was rapidly sinking into the grave. Just at this time Hercules arrived at the palace of Admetus, and found all the inmates in great distress for the impending loss of the devoted wife and beloved mistress. Hercules, to whom no labor was too arduous, resolved to attempt her rescue. 
He went and lay in wait at the door of the chamber of the dying queen, and when death came for his prey, he seized him and forced him to resign his victim. Alcestis recovered and was restored to her husband. Milton alludes to the story of Alcestis in his sonnet On His Deceased Wife. Methought I saw my late Ispau's saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave, whom Jove's great son to her glad husband gave, rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. J. R. Lowe has chosen the shepherd of King Admetus for the subject of his short poem. He makes that event the first introduction of poetry to men. Men called him but a shiftless youth, in whom no good they saw, and yet unwittingly, in truth, they made his careless words their law. And day by day more holy grew, each spot where he had trod, till after poets only knew their first-born brother was a god. Antigon a large proportion of both the interesting persons and of the exalted acts of legendary Greece belongs to the female sex. Antigone was as bright an example of filial and sisterly fidelity as was Alcestis of connubial devotion. She was the daughter of Oedipus and Jocasta, who with all their descendants were the victims of an unrelenting fate, dooming them to destruction. Oedipus, in his madness, had torn out his eyes, and was driven forth from his kingdom Thebes, dreaded and abandoned by all men, as an object of divine vengeance. Antigone, his daughter, alone shared his wanderings, and remained with him till he died, and then returned to Thebes. Her brothers, Atocles and Polynices, had agreed to share the kingdom between them, and reigned alternatively year by year. The first year fell to the lot of Eteocles, who when his time expired, refused to surrender the kingdom to his brother. Polynices fled to Adrastus, king of Argos, who gave him his daughter in marriage, and aided him with an army to enforce his claim to the kingdom. This led to the celebrated expedition of the Seven Against Thebes, which furnished ample materials for the epic and tragic poets of Greece. Amphiarius, the brother-in-law of Adrastus, opposed the enterprise, for he was a soothsayer, and knew by his art that no one of the leaders except Adrastus would live to return. But Amphiarius, on his marriage to Eraphiel, the king's sister, had agreed that whenever he and Adrastus should differ in opinion, the decision should be left to Eraphiel. Polynices, knowing this, gave Eraphiel the color of Harmonia, and thereby gained her to his interest. This collar or necklace was a present which Vulcan had given to Harmonia on her marriage with Cadmus, and Polynices had taken it with him on his flight from Thebes. Eraphiel could not resist so tempting a bribe and by her decision the war was resolved on, and Amphiarius went to his certain fate. He bore his prast bravely in the contest, but could not avert his destiny. Pursued by the enemy, he fled along the river, when a thunderbolt launched by Jupiter opened the ground, and he, his chariot, and his charioteer were swallowed up. It would have not been in a place here to detail all the acts of heroism or atrocity which marked the contest, but we must not omit to record the fidelity of Edin as an upset to the weakness of Eraphiel. Capanius, the husband of Adenine, in the, order, in the ardor of the fight, declared that he would force his way into the city in spite of Jove himself, placing a ladder against the wall he mounted, but Jupiter, offended at his impious language, struck him with a thunderbolt. When his obsequies were celebrated, Evadne cast herself on his funeral pile and perished. Early in the contest, Etocles consulted the soothsayer Tiresias as to the issue. Tiresias, in his youth, had by chance seen Minerva bathing. The goddess in her wrath deprived him of his sight, but afterwards relenting gave him in compensation the knowledge of future events. 
when consulted by Etocles, he declared that victory should fall to Thebes if Minosius, the son of Creon, gave himself a voluntary victim. The heroic youth, learning the response, threw away his life in the first encounter. The siege continued long, with various successes. At length both hosts agreed that brothers should decide their quarrel by single combat. They fought and fell by each other's hands. The armies then renewed the fight, and at last the invaders were forced to yield, and fled, leaving their dead unburied. Creon, the uncle of the fallen princes, now became king, caused Eteocles to be buried with distinguished honor, but suffered the body of Polynices to lie where it fell, forbidding every one on pain of death to give it burial. Antigone, the sister of Polynices, heard with indignation the revolting edict which consigned her brother's body to the dogs and vultures, depriving it of the rights which were considered essential to the repose of the dead. Unmoved by the dissuading counsel of an affectionate but timid sister, and unable to procure assistance, she determined to brave the hazard, and to bury the body with her own hands. She was detected in the act, and Creon gave orders that she should be buried alive, as having deliberately set at naught the solemn edict of the city. Her lover, Haemon, the son of Creon, unable to avert her fate, would not survive her, and fell by his own hand. Antigone forms the subject of two fine tragedies of the Grecian poet Sophocles. Miss Jameson, in her Characteristics of Women, has compared her character with that of Cordelia, in Shakespeare's King Lear. The perusal of her remarks cannot fail to gratify our readers. The following is the lamentation of Antigone over Oedipus, when death has at last relieved him from his sufferings. Alas! I only wished I might have died with my poor father. Wherefore I should I ask for longer life? Oh, I was fond of misery with him, in what was most unlovely grew beloved when he was with me. Oh, my dearest father, beneath the earth now in deep darkness hid, worn as thou wert with age, to me thou still wast dear, and shalt be ever. Franklin's Sophocles Penelope Penelope is another one of those mythic heroines whose beauties were rather those of character and conduct than of person. She was the daughter of Icarus, a Spartan prince. Ulysses, king of Ithaca, sought her in marriage, and won her over all competitors. When the moment came for her the bride to leave her father's house, Icarus, unable to bear the thought of parting with his daughter, tried to persuade her to remain with him, and not accompany her husband to Ithaca. Ulysses gave Penelope her choice, to stay or go with him. Penelope made no reply, but dropped her veil over her face. Icarus urged her no further, but when she was gone, erected a statue to modesty on the spot where they parted. Ulysses and Penelope had not enjoyed their union more than a year when it was interrupted by the events which called Ulysses to the Trojan War. During his long absence, and when it was doubtful whether he still lived, and highly improbable that he would ever return, Penelope was importuned by numerous suitors, from whom there seemed no refuge but in choosing one of them for her husband. Penelope, however, employed every art to gain time, still hoping for Ulysses' return. One of her arts of delay was engaging in the preparation of a robe for the funeral canopy of Laertes, her husband's father. She pledged herself to make her choice among the suitors when the robe was finished. During the day she worked at the robe, but in the night she undid the work of the day. This is the famous Penelope's web, which is used as a proverbial expression for anything which is perpetually doing but never done. The rest of Penelope's history will be told when we give an account of her husband's adventures. End of chapter 23